Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself, Associate Editor Toby Young and Canadian Editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. I hope you're all doing okay. Uh, we are in Sydney at the moment, so we want to give a nod to the traditional owners of the, the land that we're on, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, uh, and to Indigenous folks who are young and old and all your ancestors. G'day, it's, it's great to all be here together. Uh, I am hugely proud of Claire Lehman at Quillette, uh, the world's leading free thought magazine, and also to Susie Jamil at Think Inc., which is the leading intellectual touring company in Australia, for collaborating on this. Uh, it's a a fascinating series of conversations with the world's most interesting minds. Uh, today's event is also backed by the Judith Nielsen Institute, as you just heard, so a big thanks to them for supporting us. I am Josh Zepps. Uh, like everyone on planet Earth, I have a podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations. Uh, two of our first guests were Claire Lehman herself and also Sam Harris, so if you do like smart, funny, provocative interviews, then whip out your phone right now and look up Uncomfortable Conversations with Josh Zepps. Glenn Lowry is one of America's leading academics and public intellectuals. He has a PhD in economics from MIT. He was the first black tenured professor of economics in the history of Harvard University, and he's published hundreds of essays and books and reviews. He was, for many years, a contributing editor at the New Republic, and now he's the Merton P. Stoltz Professor of Social Sciences and Economics at Brown University. He discusses culture and race on The Glenn Show on Blogging Heads TV. You can find him at patreon.com slash Glenn Show. Please welcome Professor Glenn Lowry. G'day, Glenn. Uh, let's just st start by asking, how are you? Uh, I could be better, I suppose. Uh, it's a personal issue. We're moving house. Things are very uh, discombobulated. You picked right just now. the right year uh, to move. This is perfectly convenient. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yes, and just about everything has gone wrong. But uh, I'm not complaining. I'm not complaining. I'm good. Well, it was four years. Imagine, cast your mind back to four years ago, since we're going to be talking about the election a lot. Uh, four years ago today, we were less than two weeks since Hillary Clinton lost the election. It was eight days after Saturday Night Live opened their show with Hillary Clinton, played by Kate McKinnon, singing Hallelujah. I remember it. I was in New York. A lot of the city was in shock. A lot of the country was in shock. A lot of the world was in shock. Were you? Yeah, I was in shock. I was very much surprised by it. I may not have been as dismayed uh, as uh, some of my colleagues and friends. Um, I didn't think the sky was falling with the election of Donald Trump, but it was certainly unexpected. Why did you differ from the opinion of most of your colleagues? Well, I thought the way I put it is that America is changing. Something important is happening in the country. Uh, there's a populist... Uh, or insurgency of a certain kind, uh, the establishment, uh, the elites have been uh, repudiated. How could this guy, uh, a carnival barker, I believe that's how President Obama once referred to candidate Trump, have possibly won this election against the, the old school Democratic uh, kingmaker of the Clintons? How could that possibly have been? So I was, I was uh, quite surprised by it. But I didn't think that uh, it was necessarily the end of the world. I thought, my, we're entering an interesting, a curious and interesting time now. Let's see what's going to happen. And to what extent did you attribute that rise in populism to economics versus the cultural or racial explanations? Uh, I, I attributed, and I'm not an expert on elections and all of that public opinion. No, but you're I an expert on economics. Uh, yeah, uh, and, and I attributed it to... Um, the uh, appeal of Trump, uh, make America great again. Uh, we're going to control who comes into the country. We're going to jettison these, uh, these bad uh, deals that are uh, hollowing out the uh, most vulnerable parts of our economy. We're going to get manufacturing back again. I mean, he won Ohio, he won Michigan, he won Wisconsin, close elections. He won Pennsylvania, a close election. Uh, I, I, I mean, it was very clear what happened. What happened was the uh, 
strength of the Democrats in the Midwest uh, got flipped. And I did attribute that mainly to economics. I think the cultural uh, uh, partisanship emerged more clearly in my mind as Trump's administration went forward on uh, gun regulation, on religious issues, uh, on racial issues, which I pay a lot of attention to. Um, but at the time of the election, my sense was it was mainly a uh, working class populist rejection of their uh, unions were not as strongly pro-democratic, uh, at least their membership, the leadership probably to a person uh, was, uh, but the membership straight. And I took that to be an economic, mainly an economic phenomenon. And that working class economic backlash against the uh, the elites, against the sense that the the whole deal had been stitched up for for decades, uh, and was was antagonistic towards the the working guy, has now been somewhat repudiated in terms of the latest election results. You mentioned all of those Midwestern and Rust Belt states, uh, Wisconsin and Michigan and uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Minnesota. Those have gone to to Joe Biden now. Does that mean? And yet Donald Trump did do a lot of the stuff on international trade that he said he was going to do. He did renegotiate NAFTA and he has taken a much more harsh line towards China. Uh, does that mean that they weren't buying it? I don't know. I don't think so necessarily. I mean, these elections in those states uh, that Trump carried narrowly were also relatively close in favor of Biden this time around Pennsylvania. There may be a recount there. Wisconsin was relatively close. Um, so uh, you know, one way of looking at it is it was pretty much a 50-50 situation in 2016 in some of those states. And it was pretty much a 50-50 situation in 2020. They just flipped differently um, on, those, on those two occasions. I must say, it does strike me as amazing. It does strike a lot of people outside of the United States as amazing how close these elections are like how predictable it is like if it was if if someone gets less than 48 and a half percent of the vote or someone gets more than 52 it's a slam dunk people are like oh my goodness this was this was a wash would you have an explanation for why things are always bouncing around in the 49 and a half to 51 and a half percent zone uh, i think we're closely divided um uh, politically uh, in the country trump got i think 73 million plus yeah. votes, uh, more than 10 million more votes than he received uh, in 2016. He got more votes than Hillary Clinton got in 2016. A lot of people are uh, supporting him. So uh, it's a closely divided country and therefore uh, closely fought elections, at least in the, in the swing states we've been talking about. Let's talk about those 73 million Americans who voted for Donald Trump, because I think many of your criticisms of contemporary American culture uh, and academic thinking may sort of feed into some of the grievances that were motivating uh, such voters. Um, I still want to sort of stick on 2016 as being a, a point of comparison. And during that uh, election, you'll remember the, the debate with Hillary Clinton, uh, where Donald Trump was asked about some sexist comments that he'd made in the past. And, and his answer was the, the biggest problem in America right now is political correctness. And he got this huge uh, roar of support from the crowd. Was he right then? And, and is he still right? Uh, I would call it the biggest problem. I certainly wouldn't call it the biggest problem, but I, I think it is real. Political correctness is a real phenomenon, and I think there are many people who are tired of being lectured, tired of being told that they're racist because they side with the cops, uh, tired of being uh, asked to apologize for America's missteps uh, in uh, decades and generations past. Uh, tired of being uh, told that uh, whatever the latter day uh, insight or sensibility is about uh, gender or identity, uh, that they have to subscribe to it uh, or else they're uh, Neanderthals. Tired of being uh, condescended to uh, the, the kind of uh, sanctimony of, of the uh, elite uh, opinion uh, foisted on them. So I, I expect there's something to that. I mean, I can say that because I sometimes feel tired of being told what to think myself. And I, you know, I'm an Ivy League uh, academic uh, professor, highly educated and so forth. 
I, I can imagine what the guy with uh, dirt under his fingernails is getting a beer at the bar after a 12-hour shift is thinking when he's uh, told that the you know the pronoun issue of uh, gender identity or whatever, and he's he's probably thinking uh, you know that's a bunch of bunk and. Uh, you're going to call me a bigot because I don't sign on to your uh, latter-day, uh, you know, cultural conviction. Uh, I think a lot of the people who are pro-life, uh, who are religious people, uh, felt the culture, the political, uh, the center of opinion in the elite uh, newsrooms and uh, the the media and whatnot uh, were uh, pushing against them. Didn't really respect their uh, their way of life and uh, and their values. So uh, I think political correctness is a problem. I think people hear the horror stories of so-and-so not being able to speak at a university or the latest edict issued by uh, uh, some potentate about uh, um, some uh, sensitive Title IX questions of sexual assault and harassment in universities in the sense that due process uh, not being respected for people accused, things of this kind. And do you think that then that that sort of narrative, that that sort of talk uh, about social justice and equity, the kind of censoriousness that you see from college students in uh, in deplatforming speakers, the kind of groupthink that you see at some left wing media organisations, the the sort of the Twitterati really running the show on the left has been bad for the Democratic Party and bad for that they would have done better in the last election had that not existed. I wonder if you could conceive of the Democratic Party without that existing. Uh, I, I wonder if it's a feasible move to imagine the Democratic Party simply stripping that away. It seems to a certain extent that some of the constituencies of the Democratic Party hew uh, very closely to these ways of thinking, and Democrats wouldn't be Democrats if they didn't think that way. Um, but having said that, uh, yeah, I expect, and I, I think I'm not alone in saying so, that. Um, uh, for example, there's a debate now going on in saying that uh, some of this political correctness uh, 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 phenomenon hurt the Democrats. Uh, there's a debate going on right now among Democrats as they look at the fact that Trump almost survived here, uh, that they didn't uh, clearly take uh, control of the Senate and probably will not take control of the Senate, as you know, depends on the outcome of two um, uh, Senate races that will be decided in January, that they lost uh, 10, 12 seats in the House. I'm not sure the exact count, but a considerable uh, setback uh, in the House of Representatives. And that down ballot in the state legislature races in the various states around the country, the Democrats didn't gain ground as had been expected. Uh, and I, and, and people, some people are saying one of the principal reasons for that is that the Democrats were saddled with... Um, opinions about issues that are not widely shared in the populace, but that are essential to key elements of their constituency. So the defund the police slogan that comes out of Black Lives Matter, uh, a somewhat radical approach to the question of police reform, uh, I think was quite unpopular in uh, many places in the country. And some speculate that uh, the Democrats embrace uh, to the extent that they did embrace it, they kind of half embraced it. They embraced it and then, well, no, we're not really for defunding the police. We're just for sending a social worker along with every police officer whenever he or she has to respond to a call. Uh, we're for reallocating funds so as not to put so much stress on uh, the putative part of policing and to give more social supports to communities where crime issues may be a problem. They said that we're not really for defunding the police, but in fact, the slogan. I think uh, didn't play well in, in many uh, congressional uh, districts and probably hurt some of their candidates. And just to clarify, Glenn, on the question of can we imagine a Democratic Party without that, for want of a better word, woke element in it, I think I'm just pointing to this uh, this constant tension that exists in a lot of political parties, but certainly on, on all in all left-wing parties, between the bread and butter, uh, working, unionised, uh, you know, high-wage, high potentially often anti-immigrant sentiment of the left versus the inner-city cosmopolitan uh, elite uh, kind of woke version. And, and there's there's always a tension between those things. So I can imagine a Democratic Party that is the former. I mean, it's sort of the, uh, 
the Democratic Party of Bill Clinton in a way, or or even pre Bill Clinton, and and the woke phenomenon is more is a more recent one. Uh, I don't know whether you're giving up on the former version of the left altogether and see it as a, as a, as a, a strand that's have, that has no future. Well, oh no, I wouldn't say that. Uh, I think it would be worth fighting for, but I think there's a real fight now uh, for that part of the polity uh, and that uh, Trump has led the Republicans in making real inroads there. I doubt that we're going to see that completely reverse. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but um, uh, his uh, talk about bringing jobs back and so on, his, his, uh, in effect, rejection of the uh, conventional Republican symbiosis with the with the uh, uh, with the elites, uh, the financial elites, and so forth, and his kind of rhetoric of populism, put America first, and all of that. I I think it has resonated, and perhaps there's an opening Trumpism without Trump. I, I, mm. I guess might be the way of putting it. Yeah, well, I was um, I was just a, a friend of mine was just asking me here in Australia who I think the the next presidents are going to be, and and I I said, well, I think the next president will be will be President Pence because I think Trump will resign in January before he gets booted <laughs> out. So we'll get Pence for three weeks, uh, then we'll get Biden, then we'll get Kamala, then we'll get Tucker Carlson, then we'll get AOC, and it'll just keep going around in these loops, <laughs> you know, more and more. Why, why sort do you think of, Trump will resign? I, I I don't I don't get that. Why would he? Oh, being partially facetious, but I think once the no- the knock comes at the door, I could imagine a scenario in which he has a sensibility of, you know what, this whole game is rigged. You can't fire me. I quit. I do things on my terms. This is ridiculous. And he just upends the table and turns over and, and storms out. But it's just a just a hypothesis. And now a commercial message from Skillshare, one of our sponsors for this episode of the Quillette podcast. Skillshare is an online learning community that offers membership with meaning. If you're looking to develop your professional skill set, there's plenty of courses to choose from, including logos and branding, web development, film, and video. In my case, I've taken courses on Adobe Photoshop and used that knowledge to design some of the graphics you see on the Quillette website. Skillshare classes include a combination of video lessons and a class project, so you can apply what you've learned. Members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, most of which are under 60 minutes with short lessons to fit any schedule. Whether you're a dabbler or a pro, Skillshare will help you experience real improvement with classes designed for real life in a supportive environment. Explore your creativity at Skillshare.com Quillette and get a one month free trial premium membership. That's S-K-I-L-L-S-H-A-R-E dot com slash Q-U-I-L-L-E-T-T-E, Skillshare dot com slash Quillette. And now back to our Quillette podcast. It's just worth noting, Glenn, I mean, when we're talking about this this sort of battle for the soul of the Democratic Party and of the broader left, they did pick Biden. You know, it's not like the and and you know, I heard Tanahisi Coates talking the other the other day and saying, I don't think that conventional sort of blue dog Democrats should be allowed to tell activists the way that they can speak. If I want to talk about defunding the police, I'm terribly sorry that that might hurt you in your Midwestern swing district, Mr. Democratic aspirational congressperson. But like that is not actually my issue. You always need to have activists who are pushing the conversation in provocative ways and the chips will fall where they may politically. What do you make of that? Uh, I think that's interesting. Uh, I think that's going to keep Nancy Pelosi up late at night. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that's predictable coming from Tanahasi Coates. I mean, the 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 kind of uh, supercilious self righteousness of that pose. Never mind the team. Never never mind the fact that you need fifty percent plus one of whatever the body that's making the decision is in a democracy in order to get what you want. Never mind that. Never mind that not every congressional district looks like Alex, uh, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's conditional congressional district, that some people in Western Pennsylvania actually have to fight tooth and nail as Democrats to get themselves elected. Never mind all of that. We get to say whatever we want to say and don't tell us how to talk. Suppose the right wing of the Republican Party were to take that pose and say, we get to wave our banners and we get to uh, hold our rallies and we get to shout our epithets and we get to uh, uh, act like the racists that we actually are. And never mind that. I mean, uh, clearly we would see the problem with that. 
Well, some, would say, some would say they do. I mean, some, some would say that the right doesn't do a very good job of clamping down on, uh, on racists going out and, and uh, rallying. Yeah, I suppose some would say that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll take that as a comment. Uh, let's, so let's talk yeah, about you, this. You got me there, Josh. You got me there. <laughs> let's talk about this, this past summer. You wrote a piece in Quillette in, in June about the, the riots and about the civil unrest in the wake of George Floyd's killing. Uh, and I think it's impossible to analyse the, uh, the, the impact and the causes of the 2020 election without understanding what was taking place over the summer. What was your position? Uh, I think the piece was called something like denounce the violence now or without equivocation. And I was urging my fellow uh, Americans, I won't classify myself beyond that, to not uh, hold uh, hold back in asserting the uh, with clarity and with force, with conviction, uh, the unacceptability of uh, the uh, of violence and the destruction of property and the attacks on police officers and the, the looting and arson uh, that were, uh, were uh, breaking out around the edges of mostly peaceful demonstrations. That's the formula, mostly peaceful. And indeed, they were mostly peaceful, but the fact is that they were not entirely peaceful. And often the news, the most newsworthy fact of what was happening was that a police station had been seized and was uh, being set on fire. That a shopping center had been uh, uh, attacked by mobs of people who uh, broke through windows and carried out goods, that uh, property was being uh, destroyed, and that assaults were being carried out against people uh, uh, in, in these situations. And I thought that needed to be denounced with uh, clarity for the sake of uh, both the uh, those who wanted to see uh, Donald Trump unseated. Well, he has been unseated. Narrowly so, um, but I thought it was a, an albatross around the neck of Democratic candidates to have to go into an election uh, with this kind of disorder uh, ongoing. But also for the sake of the country as a whole, uh, I thought that the right moral principle was to, um, in the face of the unrest, was to denounce uh, the violence, encourage people to express their opinions peacefully, but to denounce without the hesitation or equivocation of the violence that was taking out. So I said so. Is there a problem with the way that the media covers such things in the sense that if you had 98 or 99 percent of of people who are hitting the streets being peaceful, but you have one or two percent of uh, of people who capitalize on the riots just to to cause a shitstorm, pardon the French, that those people are the ones who who get all of the the attention? And is there any way to avoid that? Well, if they were getting all of the attention, that would be a problem. Uh, if you turned on Fox News, as I did occasionally do just to see what they were saying, uh, I would turn on uh, Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson and I'd get a loop of uh, video of incidents of violence. You'd think the only thing that was happening uh, was the violence because they wanted to highlight it. That was a misreporting of what was going on. It was not a balanced reporting of what was going on. But I think on the other side, there was also a tendency to suppress uh uh, a, a critical uh, reporting on uh, on these uh, demonstrations to put a prettier face on them, perhaps, than was warranted to downplay uh, some of the ugliness that uh, that one could find. So um, I, I think uh, there's enough blame in terms of uh, biased or distorted reporting about these incidents to go around. It's part of what I see as a, a problem in our in our time uh, with our political culture that uh, the uh, very narration and reportage and, you know, the, the uh, putting out of facts uh, gets conditioned by political sensibility and uh, a reader doesn't know what, quite what to believe. Is that getting worse? I don't know. Uh, maybe it will not be as bad in a post-Trump era. I, I don't know. Um, uh, my sense is it's a lot worse now than it was 10 years ago. And 
worse by far than it was 25 years ago. Well, I mean, it, it, I've even noticed it getting worse in the past four years in, in the sense that, uh, that there are mainstream publications now where you can clearly see the ideological bent in terms of their wanting to be part of a, a larger mission, I suppose, to vanquish Trumpism and to, make, and, and to always put the most negative possible spin on it, which means that uh, it's not that they're publishing lies or misleading information. I'm not making a false equivalence between the New York Times and Breitbart here. But I can even see as a journalist that there is a, there, there's an ideological pool in, that, that, that is, meant, is intended to pull you along. And if you diverge from it, there are consequences. Well, and we're, we're hearing this from people, the Barry Weiss case at the New York Times or uh, Glenn Greenwald or Andrew Sullivan. Uh, there, there are a number of these cases of, of very fine journalists who, are, um, who have been squeezed by uh, the sense to which they're uh, – what they want to say doesn't line up with what, what their their colleagues think is the appropriate posture for journalists. I think that I actually canceled my print subscription to the New York Times. I still have the online access. But uh, I, I just felt it was becoming a propaganda rag. I, 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 I keep reading stories and thinking, uh, my God, I mean, uh, you're not actually giving me a, a balanced account of what's, what's happened here. You're, you're trying to tell me what to think. Uh, I, I felt manhandled, so to speak, by uh, by some of these organs as they become propaganda organs to a certain degree. So I don't mean to rain on your uh, on your defiance towards the New York Times, but if you're still a subscriber to the digital edition, you know they're still counting you as a subscriber in terms of in terms of the way that they promote themselves to advertisers. So you're still part of the problem, Mr. Glenn Lowry. You're still part of the oh, New York well. Times. <laughs> yeah, well, I have to. I have to have access because I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm a public intellectual, and and I stuff is coming up, and I, I need to be able to get at the article, and this behind a firewall. So I, you're allowed. <laughs> I forgive you. I forgive you. Uh, there, I mean, the, of course, the just I'll, I'll just touch on cancel culture here while we're on the subject, and then we can we can get on to, to bigger things. But the counter argument, which I've heard put by the Ezra Kleins of the world is, is that, yeah, today's environment might be hostile to a person like Barry Weiss or Andrew Sullivan, uh, but the reality is that throughout all of human history, if you were a trans woman of colour and you were in an editorial meeting, if you were even able to get a job that got you a seat at the, at the editorial meeting in the first place uh, and you pitched something, there would be a lot of raised eyebrows, you know, something that was personal to your lived experience, as we're supposed to call it now, uh, there'd be a lot of raised eyebrows and it'd probably get shot down and you'd probably find yourself excluded and driven out. So now the tables have turned and it's the Andrew Sullivans who are getting uh, driven out, but this is the first time in history that it's been going that way. Um, do you give any credence to that? What kind of argument is that? I mean, how do two wrongs make a right? Uh, I mean, <laughs> This is what I was wondering, taking... but I just wanted to get your take. <laughs> Okay, well, that's my take. Yeah, okay. Uh, you tweeted um, yesterday that the U.S. race debate is about to change. You said, uh, unencumbered by, quote-unquote, orange man bad, uh, the discourse is freer now. What are you anticipating? Well, so um, African Americans, we talked about the race debate, so I'm talking about blacks. Uh, in the cities... Uh, you know, uh, with uh, high uh, crime rates and uh, high poverty rates and schools that are not working and dilapidated housing and disorder and so on, uh, are, I think, entitled to better governance in those uh, metropolitan areas than they've been receiving. Um People are, these are one-party states or cities. Uh, there's a, a lot of corruption. There's a lot of malfeasance and incompetency. Uh, people are uh, long-serving incumbents who haven't really delivered for their people. I, I just assert that people will argue the point. But let me stipulate that there are some problems in Baltimore, in St. Louis, um, in Chicago, in Detroit, uh, in Oakland, California, and whatnot, that are the legitimate basis for a political criticism of the governing classes of those cities. Now, with Donald Trump uh, uh, trumpeting from the podium at a press conference, attacking 
the elected officials serving in the Congress or serving at the local level in these places. Um, calling them, in effect, uh, you know, failed uh, states and, you know, uh, telling African-Americans, what do you have to lose? You might as well try, you know, whatever. With Donald Trump looming in the background, any criticism that affirms something that Donald Trump had said becomes less effective and indeed discrediting to the person who offers the criticism in virtue of the fact that you're saying something that Donald Trump said. Now, let me just declare, I don't think Donald Trump was wrong about everything. But it was impossible to agree with him, given that he was orange man bad, given that he was uh, a racist, quote unquote, in the imaginations of so many people, uh, given that he was the personification of white supremacy in the imaginations of so many people. So if as a person, in my case, an African-American engaged in debate about the race issue here in the country, I wanted to step away from conventional wisdom uh, and, in, and enter into some of these uh, dirty laundry, uh, you know, uh, areas of uh, saying, you know, why can't we, uh, why can't the schools work better at delivering effective education to people in our society who need it most? Um, I would be loath to say it uh, full-throatedly uh, if I thought I was going to wake up to a tweet from the president of the United States the next day saying, you see, even Ivy League professors agree with me. But with him out of the way, perhaps there's more space for that kind of conversation to take place. Perhaps we can get past this apocalyptic uh, uh, kind of uh, posture. Oh, my God, the sky is falling. The world is coming to an end. A racist is in the White House. Fascism looms on the horizon. And we can actually talk about what can be done to more effectively educate the tens upon tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of African-American and other youngsters who depend on public schools and struggling cities uh, and who are, if you look at the test scores and so are, are not being effectively educated. What can we do? Maybe that conversation can take place. Maybe we can talk about crime and violence, not just violence perpetrated by police officers. I'm happy to talk about that. By all means, let's hold those police officers accountable but the greater, far greater scale of violence being perpetrated on African-Americans in the communities where they live by criminals, by thugs, by violent criminals. Maybe we can actually talk more about that if we're not echoing orange man bad. That's what I had in mind. I like that. I mean, I think it's also a good repudiation of, uh, you know, I, I was talking to a lot of people in this sort of what I would call the, the broadly the radical center, the intellectual dark web type people who are not supporters of Trump, but who are also, yeah. uh, you know, not crazy about regressive leftist woke uh, politics. And some of them I ha have had disagreements with leading up to the election because they seemed to believe that voting for Trump would at least be a bulwark against the insanity of the far left. And my position was always, you don't understand that, that Trump is playing the left just as much as he's playing his base. I mean, one of, the, one, of, one of the ingenious aspects of his nihilism, in my opinion, is not just that he's able to activate the Republican base, but that he's so good at activating the left-wing base in precisely the wrong ways for them to appeal to the kinds of voters they need to appeal to to win elections, and in precisely the right ways to cause a whole lot of headache uh, for everybody. So I take your point there that it's a, it's even a bigger point perhaps than the one you just made, which is not only does his absence give people who have who share his critiques space to talk, but his absence gives people who don't share his critiques space to talk in a way that's more reasoned and rational than they have been. So let's talk about some of those things. I mean, you just mentioned crime and, and violence. What What would be agenda number one if Glenn Lowry was emperor of the universe now? Uh, um. I would uh, invest more in education and I would open up the uh, provision of educational services to more uh, competition with charter schools and things like that. Um, I would uh, take seriously the uh, problem of the maintenance of order in uh, areas where there are a lot of guns and, and there's a lot of violence and um, uh, Put that really near the top of my agenda. I'm not, I don't have a magic bullet. I mean, I don't know what the answer to the question of uh, urban violence is, but I, I just know that 
the the loss, the pathos, the agony, the the tragic pain that's being endured by people, children being gunned down, and so on. It's just it's just uh, horrible. I would I would want to make that a a, a major uh, a major focus. Um, I you know th- there are a lot of uh, small bore kind of policy things that one can talk about, but you know that that's that's you know, there's healthcare, of course, that's not small bore. Uh, we're going to see what will happen uh, with the Democrats uh, uh, now in the White House, uh, but you need the legislature to get anything done, and uh, it's going to be a problem getting anything done. In your academic economic research, you're uh, an expert on uh, income disparities. Uh, how much of a role does inequality play in all of this? Well, I think it plays a major role, um, not just racial inequality, by the way. Uh, I, I think uh, one reason for the populist uh, turn in, in American political culture is uh, stagnation and wages and um, economic uh, opportunity for a bulk of the population and the pulling away of, of the elites. Uh, so I, I, th- I think it's a big deal. What do we do? About I mean, it's that? obvious. It's obvious that the energy in the Democratic Party on the left is substantially fueled, it seems to me, by uh, a reaction against uh, the rising inequality of wealth and, and of income and, and the separation of economic uh, opportunity between the coastal elite. Uh, highly educated and, uh, you know, people who are in the uh, factories and mines and, uh, uh, you know, fracking uh, industry and, and things like that in, in uh, the uh, center of the country. And yet, as you mentioned earlier, that may be the, the, uh, the ideas that are motivating the Democratic Party, but the people who you're talking about there are overwhelmingly Trump's base. <laughs> uh, they are, or at least in um, many of those places they are. That's true. Mm. I, I noticed that minimum wage uh, 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 legislation, or I should say ballot initiatives that, that came before plebiscites that came before the electorate in a number of the states did relatively well. Uh, I think that is an indication of uh, people's discontent about about inequality. Yeah, I'm trying to figure um, out whether or not there's a transpartisan solution to this, or at least a transpartisan framing for the conversation, so that the conversation about inequality on the left can't get caricatured by the right as being hatred of billionaires, and the conversation about inequality on the right can't get caricatured by the left as uh, as uh, not caring about poor people and being hoity-toity uh, rich Wall Street fat cats. I, I, I don't know. Can you see a, a common ground? Uh, no, I actually, I don't see a common ground. I mean, I'm coming here for good news. <laughs> you really get me down today. <laughs> so let's look at the next four years then. Uh, so we've got a Biden administration. Uh, I, I, you know, I, what, what do you, what do you foresee? Well, I assume that uh, the first uh, 100 days or 150 days will be trying to undo a lot of what they can undo without the U.S. Congress of what uh, Trump had done. This will be uh, the deregulation uh, impetus of Trump will get um, uh, undone because uh, the president can do uh, much of that by uh, administrative fiat. There will be a lot of uh, uh, what I gather will be going back into the Paris uh, Accord on the climate. I gather we'll be trying to resurrect the Iran deal. I gather that our relations with our allies and NATO will have certainly a different tone, uh, less uh, uh, adversarial in an effort to restore America. I, I find it interesting. Uh, make America great again. Put America first. This, these were Trump's, uh, you know, slogans. America first. And I never heard anybody uh, argue against that proposition. Although I think many people graded at it. America should be a leader of the world in confronting the great problems of uh, peace and prosperity and climate. And as a leader, we shouldn't be putting our interests nakedly first. We should be trying to, by example, show how cooperative and humanitarian enhancing, uh, you know, efforts of, uh, on a global scale can, can be enacted. 
but I never heard anybody say, oh, no, America should be first. No, no, no. <laughs> America third. America. How about America third? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that's not a very popular slogan. Right I gather, there will, I, I gather there will be a, a less nakedly self-interested, from a na- national point of view, uh, rhetoric. And we're going to rejoin the W, the World Health Organization, for example, and whatnot. Uh, so I expect there'll be a change in that kind of rhetoric. Um, I don't know how many uh, judges, these are lifetime appointments to the federal courts. Trump appointed hundreds of judges, three members of the United States Supreme Court. His impact on the federal judiciary in just these four short years has been monumental. That's not something that can be undone uh, by a Democratic president because those are lifetime appointments. And moreover, anything that uh, Biden should try to do by way of judicial appointments will have to get through the Senate, which is likely to remain in Republican hands and so on. So, um, yeah, lots, a lot is going to come down to the much famed uh, friendship between Mitch McConnell and Joe Biden as to whether or not anything happens in the next four years, uh, isn't it? It's going to show, it's going to test, <laughs> test that friendship, I would, I would imagine. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. But what you're talking about there in terms of America First is is really interesting and it, and it gets to, to something where I really want to get your thoughts on, which is the role of America in the world and how we should think about the legacy of America. Because fundamental to all of this, underpinning 2016, 2020, the division in social in, in media between social media and these legacy media outlets who all have a, a certain agenda to push, uh, underpinning the grievances of the left and the grievances of working people is uh, a sort of a differing sensibility about what America means and what kind of future we want for America. And I noticed that you were on Megyn Kelly's podcast recently with Coleman Hughes, and uh, she excerpted a piece that, that sort of went viral where you were pushing back against the 1619 Project at the New York Times and this idea that America is fundamentally instantiated as a genocidal uh, uh, calamity. And uh, I, want, I want you to just sort of tell us what you said there and put it in a context that might be larger and help us think about the big forces that are shaping the states at the moment. Well, that's tall order, Josh. Let me see what I can <laughs> you've do. got four minutes. No, you've got as much time. <laughs> well, no. Um, so um, I was asked about the 1619 Project, which I've been critical of. This is and do you want to just explain? To, yeah, sorry. Yeah, explain. To be yeah, I was just going to explain yeah. that the New York Times uh, Sunday Magazine devoted uh, one of its uh, issues to an exploration of uh, the founding of America and an advocacy of the position that the year 1619, taken as the inauguration of slavery in the United States because it was the year, and that's very early, 1619 is before the Mayflower lands in uh, Massachusetts, 1619, we're in Virginia, and uh, some African uh, captive slaves are put ashore and are acquired, purchased by colonialists 
It's the first instance of slavery in the United States of 1619. It's argued in the project should be the center of our thinking about the American story. That's when the country starts. And the narrative about America needs to much more uh, uh, assiduously attend to the role of enslavement, of racial domination, of white supremacy in the founding and the making of the country. 1619, not 1776, is the year when the American story really gets founded. The struggle of African Americans for human dignity and for equal citizenship, uh, an organizing principle around which you can understand uh, the, the history of the country. Um, and I objected uh, with others to, to that for a number of grounds. I don't want to necessarily right here recap. The <laughs> People can always argument. listen to Megan's podcast. You don't have to, I'm not asking Indeed, you they to, can. to dance. They can. But, but I was saying there, what's going on here is a struggle over the narrative that one is going to tell concretely, directly to one's children in the schools. How do we teach the story of the, of the country? And uh, without wanting to fall into some kind of, um, you know, uh, jingoistic uh, propaganda, you know, America, the land of the free, the home of the brave, America, the beacon of hope to all of mankind, uh, America, a city on a hill, you know, uh, uh, without attending to the uh, uh, crimes in American history and to the to the the, the tragedy of uh, what was chattel slavery over centuries to what happened to the indigenous people of the North American continent as a consequence of its uh, of its conquest and domination uh, uh, by uh, what became the American nation state uh, without forgetting those things nevertheless to tell a, a more balanced uh, account uh, an account that credited uh, the greatness uh, of the American project, uh, an account that recognized the extraordinary significance in world history of the founding of the country. I mean, the French Revolution plays out in parallel to the American Revolution at the end of the 18th century. Um, and the American Revolution lays down a template, a uh, structure of government that instantiates uh, enlightenment Enlightenment era ideals that influenced the founding generation of the country in institutions that actually survive to the present day and that constitute an example to uh, aspiring uh, peoples all over the, the world and have done so for many generations. A country that actually faced up to the imperative of destroying slavery fitfully and with a uh, great cost in a great civil war, but nevertheless, the slaves were freed and made citizens of the Republic and in the fullness of time came to be equal citizens of the Republic. This is a world historic accomplishment, I wanted to say. America is um, the place where uh, the world turns uh, in its desperation facing fascism. <laughs> of course, my friends in Russia have been emailing me, telling me, you didn't win the Second World War all by yourself. You, know, you didn't defeat Nazism all by yourself. I take the point. I take the point. But uh, the United States of America did defeat fascism in the Pacific and did, with the cooperation of allies, defeat fascism in Europe, did stand toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe with the Soviet Union. Uh, which of those forces, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics or the United States of America, which you would rather would one... Uh, with uh, thought, rather have seen prevail in the conflict, which was uh, which was the Cold War. Uh, it's a good and a great country. It's been uh, a land of uh, receiving wave after wave of immigrants from every corner of the globe. Tens of millions of new Americans have come into our polity uh, in the last half century from uh, mostly non-European uh, points of origin and have been assimilated into the uh, into the body politic, have prospered, uh, uh, have, have been accepted. Uh, African Americans are the wealthiest and most powerful large population of African descent on the planet. Uh, I, the, the, the gross national product of Nigeria with its 200 million people is less than a trillion dollars a year. The United States GNP is $20 trillion a year and African-Americans have got, well, maybe not quite 10% of that, but, and we're 35 or 40 million strong. We're five to 10 times richer than the average Nigerian. 
I gave that just as one example. So, so there's a lot to celebrate here. And uh, it's a good and a great country. Uh, it's not a flawless country. It's not perfect, but it is perfectible. And it has shown itself to be interested in pursuing uh, that project of perfectibility. Um, and that is a different narrative in approaching the question of telling the story. I wouldn't want to tell the story of America without attention to slavery. But I wouldn't want to make the story of America be driven by my antipathy to slavery and my sense that those who were prepared to practice it are, um, you know, therefore uh, beneath contempt and the project, the political project that they initiated should be viewed with a fundamental suspicion. No, um, in fact, that political project brought about the world that we live in um, and warts and all it's a story worth affirming. There's nothing wrong with a patriotic affirmation of the accomplishments of the American project, uh, of the virtue of the American project, even as one remains uh, cognizant of, of its uh, flaws and of the need to, to acknowledge them. Glenn, on the question of who really won the, the Second World War, your Russian friends might write to you saying that they they played some part in vanquishing the Nazis. But I think we all know deep down that Australia was the indispensable nation in the Second World War. I'll just take it. I'll, you're welcome. You're welcome. Sorry, I, I'm sorry, but I do appreciate your sacrifice. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, what, what was interesting, though, was that, so Megyn Kelly tweeted out a, a quote of some of what you were just articulating. And uh, yeah. what's extraordinary is to read the replies. I mean, I know one should never read Twitter replies or a comment thread, but, you know, just to t a random sample here. Oh, what a convenient narrative of history, one person uh, writes. That's all this is, after all, a narrative that highlights the triumphs of the oppressed and downplays is the innumerable, innumerable horrors committed by the oppressors. Another person writes of you, you insist on justifying what's wrong and ugly. You don't listen to the people uh, that you hurt, demonized, stepped on, treated less than or stolen, stole from. It's all about you. That's why we needed the 1619 Project. You're still not listening. Are you still not listening, Glenn? I'm listening. Uh, but... Uh, I don't understand why uh, a, a affirmation of the virtues and the and the uh, signal accomplishments of the American project precludes what it is that those critics would have me do, which is to acknowledge and uh, uh, teach to my children uh, of the things that have been uh, problematic and that have been wrong. What what, what would they have me do uh, about? Uh, uh, these uh, historical wrongs. I mean, no, they should not be forgotten. For, uh, forgotten. But uh, must we go through uh, the next hundred years in, a, in various acts of abnegation and self-flagellation uh, and apology? Uh, I was going to say, I think what they what they want you to do is get a bunch of reeds and slap yourself across the back in a public display of self-flagellation every time you uh, you appear in in, in public. Um, I wonder I wonder whether or not you think that let's just talk about I want to sort of look down the track and I totally take what you were just saying because I think the reason why I was trying to link this this uh, conversation about what is the moral character of the United States of America to the specifics of the election and all of the culture war stuff that we're talking about at the moment is because I think part of Trump's appeal and part of the make America great slogan is the sense that America has been great and can be great, and that that vision is opposed to a vision on the left that is often mealy-mouthed and petty and sanctimonious and, and somewhat ugly or judgy. And if you've got a large body of Americans who are saying, we are fundamentally decent people, and this is a fundamentally decent country, and I don't hear enough of right. that from the left, then who are they going to vote for, apart from the guy who says that it's great and it can be even greater? Um, but I, I want to wrap up by thinking about how race and the culture wars uh, feed into all of this in, in the future. Um, what should we be doing? How should we be talking? And will there be a day when race doesn't matter in the United States? I hope so, but I don't see it. Um, it's it's going to not happen in my lifetime, a day when race doesn't matter. Um, what I think we should be doing is acknowledging the need to address uh, the deficits 
within the African-American population that are a consequence of this long history of uh, unequal treatment. Deficits reflected, for example, in the um, uh, intellectual development of the youngsters, which is inadequate, or in the overrepresentation amongst criminal offenders or uh, whatever. Uh, and um, uh, make that the focus of our uh, of our uh, discourse. Uh, that that's a big, big, complicated set of issues. But development, acknowledging the inadequacy of the development of African American capacities to function and to perform this on the average for a large population, not with respect to every individual, but addressing those deficits. Um, so I've been saying in some of the things I've been writing lately that, and then again, this is about narratives. We were talking just a moment ago about the narrative of the uh, American project. How do you tell the story of the country? And I want to talk about the narrative that we use to, uh, uh, to account for uh, the racial disparities and inequalities that we see in the country right now. And one of those uh, kinds of uh, narrations is uh, uh, puts the emphasis on bias on unfair treatment, on discrimination, on racism. Uh, the idea is that the gap that we might see, whether it's in the educational or in the workplace or the wealth holdings or uh, whatever, is a function of bias, of unfair treatment, and that the remedy is a, to address ourselves to uh, white society uh, to insist that they uh, reform, that they uh, repent, that, that they... Uh, uh, acknowledge and reverse their biased and uh, uh, racially unfair uh, engagement with African-Americans. That's one there of the bias. Uh, but I want to juxtapose to that the idea of development. Uh, uh, disparity for African-American life or uh, failure to credit the uh, uh, value of African-American contribution, rather they are a result of the fact that history has had a long, has cast a long shadow and a history of slavery and then of exclusion and marginalization and then of segregation and discrimination has had its consequences and one needs to redress those consequences by in, enhancing the capacities of African-Americans to perform. Uh, so that's the broad umbrella that I would bring to uh, the question that you posed about how I would like to see conversations about race and racial inequality uh, shape up going forward. But fundamentally, I would, I would um, situate that kind of a discourse within a commitment to enhance the capacities for functioning for all Americans, not just for African Americans, I wouldn't make the race question the primary question of politics or of social policy. Um, but to the extent that I'm talking about the race question, I would want to focus much more on redressing the underdevelopment of African-American populations uh, within the American political economy than on emphasizing, uh, castigating, um, uh, and, and criticizing the uh, purported uh, racial uh, uh, bias and discrimination, because I think a lot of the disparities that we are uh, confronted with today are not in any straightforward way the result of bias uh, behavior by uh, the power structure, but rather are a reflection of the uh, uh, failures of uh, too many uh, African-American uh, youngsters to realize their full human potential. One of the impediments, of course, about having that conversation is uh, is that that's a conversation that the moment a white person steps into uh, is uh, is regarded as being uh, something of an apologist for, uh, for for white supremacy. You know, you can't you can't sort of say, well, I mean, you know, what uh, what about what about black on black crime or what about the dysfunction of uh, of um, of impoverished black families without sounding like you're trying to change the subject from racism. Well, yeah, you are changing the subject from racism. I think so. I don't have courage of their convictions. And when confronting an African-American who accuses them of racism, 
say no. Uh, I think when 70% of African-American youngsters are born to a woman who's not married, meaning those kids are raised in a household where the father is not routinely present, that that's a, a, a very profound sociological fact that has far-reaching implications for the development of the human potential of the kids who are in that situation. It's not neutral. It's a significant uh, impediment to realizing the possibilities that the society uh, uh, presents to all of its citizens. And we want to help you deal with that problem. We, 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 we want to uh, so order our institutions so as to affirm uh, what, what needs to happen in the lives of youngsters uh, so that the, by the time they're in the fourth or the fifth grade, they're reading at grade level uh, so that they are able to um, uh, mature into uh, stable and well-balanced individuals who are uh, uh, able to function within the society without running afoul of our of our law and, and so on, without being uh, predators uh, with respect to their neighbors and so on. We, why should a white person shrink from telling the truth if it's what they think uh, about uh, about situation? So who cares if you're called a racist? You know you're not a racist. Tell them I'm not a racist. I'm treating you like an adult. I'm taking you seriously and I'm telling you what I really think. Part of the problem, and uh, by the way, to the to the viewers, we're aware of the uh, slightly dodgy connection some, we sometimes get uh, to your to your line, Glenn. But such is the nature of uh, of chatting uh, during a, a pandemic. I mean, the the problem, Glenn, is that in, in parallel to this kind of cultural taboo is running the machinery of the Twitter cancel culture public shaming universe, in which it's all very well for someone to articulate that they're not a racist, but uh, if the mob comes for you, then it does it can have real world consequences. Okay. Uh, I accept that. I, I know many people for whom those consequences have been very troublesome. Do you have a, a message, I suppose, to people who are watching this who want to be able to articulate themselves in a more rational and unimpeded way about these sensitive issues? Um. Not really. I mean, I just said what I had to say to them. I said, have the courage of your convictions and take people seriously enough uh, to tell them what you actually think. When you don't tell people what you actually think, um, you're, you're patronizing them in a way. You're, you're, you're treating them like a child whom you're afraid to, uh, to uh, provoke into, uh, into a tantrum. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I worry about this a great deal, that there is a uh, superficial um, pablum of public expression, and then underneath that, there is a uh, uh, there is a very very different sensibility that is is husbanded and is not said publicly, and maybe is said only in the most uh, intimate of private uh, space, but that is nevertheless there. Um, I, I worry that some of these, uh, for example, incidents where um, an, an encounter happens between a young black man and a police officer that ends badly. The young black man is killed by the police officer. Maybe he was attacking him. Maybe he had a, a very extensive uh, a criminal record. Maybe he was on drugs when the encounter took place. Maybe he was a miscreant that hadn't held a decent job in a decade. Maybe he was abusive to his uh, 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 romantic partner or the mother of his children or whatever it might be. Uh, maybe he had robbed a convenience store of a package of uh, cigarillos before he went out and got into a fight with an armed police officer that ended up winning being shot dead in the street. And uh, the superficial narrative is a white supremacy strikes yet again. Racist police officer, thug police officer, guns down innocent black man with his hands up begging not to be shot. But the reality is, well, uh, a a uh, uh, belligerent criminal provokes a police officer by placing him in danger of his life to the point that the police officer feels compelled to use deadly force in order to control the situation, leaving this young man laying dead in the street. That's the reality of what actually happened in the minds of many people. Many people. And I worry that the 
the superficial conversation covers up the resentment that many people will feel, will harbor at A, being told something that they know is not true, and B, then being told to shut up about it, lest they be called a racist or labeled as insensitive. And, and uh, I feel that that might be one of the things going on that accounts for the surprising um, strength of uh, a, a demagogue like Donald J. Trump uh, in American politics, that there are people who won't tell poll takers the polls were wildly off yet again. This is twice in a row that the polls have wildly underestimated the uh, the strategy. Know that they are not supposed to say certain things, but they nevertheless harbor these thoughts. And once it's gone underground, it can't be engaged anymore. You you you're not really winning an argument when your basic Trump card, <laughs> pardon the pun. <laughs> Um, is, is, is to threaten to, to cancel people if they dare to speak out. You're not winning that argument. Uh, you're just making people uh, go underground with it. Well, hopefully those underground arguments and those conversations that people are having in private and in the solace of their own brains are being brought out into the open through conversations like this, conversations like the ones that Willette is committed to and ones that Think Inc are committed to and that I'm committed to on my podcast, Uncomfortable Conversations. Glenn, it's a pleasure and a delight uh, to talk to you. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks, Josh. It was really my pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content. 